I don't always have announcements, but I have a load of announcements today, so we'll just wade right through them. The first one is uh, the Country Bible Church policy on uh, CDs and DVDs and so forth. I need to put this out for, so we'll all be on the uh, same page and that we'll not have any confusion. Uh, the first point is if you'd like to be on the current production list, right, please place me on the current list on a CBC lesson order form in the library and specify the current lesson series you desire. The lessons will be made each week and placed in the library for you to pick up. Now, th what this means is that if you want to get automatic DVDs or CDs made, you, you do this, you write that that's what you want to have and what series you want, not which particular tape, but what series. For instance, we're in the Roman series now. We just got off the fundamental series and so forth. And <clears throat> this is for the current. So you can get the current production list would be the Roman series right now and First Thessalonians for the week. And you specify what you want, whether you want CDs or DVDs and so forth. Second point here is current CDs and DVDs will be made for those who are not on the current list by filling out the CBC lesson order form in the library, which specifies the current lessons desired. In other words, you don't have to be on a current list in order to receive uh, whatever lessons, uh, current lessons you want. Uh, sometimes there might be a particular lesson that you want to get a CD or DVD of, and you just fill it out, and that particular lesson will be placed in the library the next Sunday. Uh, if, you, if you have access to the uh, Internet and our website, uh, that would be the best way to get the lessons if, if you can do it that way. But we're not saying that you, you... We're not trying to discourage you from getting the DVDs or CDs from the current production list, but it's, we only have so many... Uh, so much time and so many people to work on these things. So uh, you're welcome to do it, but if you can get it off the Internet, that would be the best way to do it. But if you just want to get it, sometimes people get on the current list so that they can have DVDs. See, we, can't, we don't have DVDs available on the Internet. So if you want DVDs, you're either going to have to fill out a form for whichever lesson you want or get on the current list and request DVDs. I know I have this up here so you can see it, and I'm going to have what I have on the board back there in the library also. The third point is if you fail to pick up your CDs or DVDs in a month's time, your name will be removed from the current list, and your disc will be stored for a second month. If you don't pick them up within two months, they will be offered to others to, uh, who might like to have them. In other words, we, we have limited space. We have a very small library and limited space to store these. And if people are on the current list and after a month they don't pick them up, uh, they may be getting uh, three CDs or DVDs a month and they stack up. So this is how we're going to handle that. We'll, we'll, we'll just put them back in, our, in, in the storage or somewhere for another month. And then if they, they're not picked up then... Um, They'll be given to other people. And here's the last point here. Past lessons will only be available in the MP3 format. So if you were removed from the current list, you may request past lessons on MP3s 
and request to be placed back on the current list. Well, you know, you can be, uh, get back on it, but the thing of it is, is when we don't hear from someone for, let's say, a month, and we're making CDs or DVDs for them, we don't know if they have moved out of state. We don't know if they're going to another church, and we don't do. We don't want to just keep making them. So this is the policy we we have set in place. And the reason it's MP3 format is because it's very difficult and time-consuming to go back and get one particular message that's not current and, and make it. The, the equipment we have, we can make seven at a time, and we can make seven in the same amount of time we can make one if it was just in the past. So I hope that's not confusing, but that's our best shot at uh, getting us all up to speed with regards to the uh, CDs and DVDs. What amounts to is that the only way to get current DVDs is to, I mean, to get DVDs is to get them currently. So that when you get a message and you want to get a DVD, you can just fill out the form. Or if you're on the current production list, it means it's ongoing, you can order DVDs that way. Okay, got through that one. That's the first one. Second thing is that there's a group of us who are going on a cruise from Galveston going into the Caribbean. Uh, we're going to leave September the 26th and come back October the 3rd. This is um, one week, and we thought, well, uh, it just kind of mushroomed. Uh, the few people, more people were interested in it, and I thought, well, I'll just give the invitation to the whole church. If you want to go on that cruise, then see Mary. <laughs> And she will give you, yeah, raise your hand, Mary. Uh, she'll give you the details, and the availability is still, uh, the rooms are still available, but as time gets closer to the, to the cruise, I don't know how that will be. So if you want to go or you're, if you're interested, uh, talk to Mary, and she'll give you the details on that. One more announcement, <laughs> and that is don't forget that the Glory Be Girls are going to be meeting this Wednesday here at the church at 1030, right? 10.30, and there's going to be a, a interesting um, DVD played, and it's, uh, where is it? I have it up here. Um, my Bible's on it, okay? It's called uh, America Needs God's Help Now, and it's by uh, Dr. Charles Stanley. And I hope that y'all will support this uh, Glory Be Girls. There's a lot of effort that goes into uh, making it happen. So... I think that's all of the announcements, so let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, uh, confession of sin to God. If necessary, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you are our God, omnipotent and omniscient, and you are full of grace and mercy. And you have revealed the great and mighty things in your word for us to be able to stand on those promises. Moreover, you have given us the ways and the, the means to execute the Christian way of life. So we pray that you will help us to open our hearts to this message that we will be objective, 
and that we will be able to concentrate on it. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is the second Sunday of our new series or new special, I don't know what you want to call it, on Christians, government, and Romans 13. Again, I tell you, it's not an issue that I particularly am fond of covering because there's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of people who are very uh, adamant about certain positions that they hold. And what I want you to do more than anything else as we go through this is to just listen. I ask a tremendous number of questions in this. The reason I ask them is for you to think, because sometimes people have a tendency to just gravitate to whatever the prevalent view may be on any particular subject, or uh, they, may, they may just think, well, uh, they just may be closed-minded. The first thing that we went over last time, and I'm going to do this on each message, and that is that there's absolutely nothing presented here that has anything to do with politics, political parties, or any uh, current politician that is now in office. It is not about politics. The second thing is I'm not trying to coerce you to vote. I'm not encouraging you not to vote, and I'm not trying to... uh, say that you need to vote for any particular person or thing. It's not about that. What it's about is seeing what the biblical perspective is with, as far as the Bible is concerned with a Christian, a believer, and the government. The last thing is that um, there is nothing in this that is going to be presented that it excuses or condones revolution of any, t- of any kind. Revolution is condemned by the Bible. And so those three things in mind and with my exhortation to you to be open-minded and just hear it. Hear it all the way through if you can. Uh, don't just jump to conclusions. When questions are presented, actually think about them. Consider them and, and because... I'm going to ask you questions that I'm almost certain that no no one has ever asked you before. And it's not to challenge you. It's not to be provocative. It's just for us to see what the perspective is for a believer and the Bible. Essentially, I started out with an oration that was given... I think it was eight years after the Constitution had been ratified, and it was like a State of the Union address. And we went through, I think it was two pages of of excerpts from that, and you would see automatically how wonderful it was when it began and how different it is today. And they were, the, the oration had to do with Uh, why they went to such lengths and sacrificed so much in order to have freedom. And essentially, they were saying, uh, this gentleman was saying, it is worth it. It is, is, um, the sacrifice was was well worth it. By the way, that was by Dr. David Ramsey. And it was made on July the 4th, 1794. Then the next thing we looked at was uh, 
Romans 13, 1 through 7, we read it. And it's amazing how many people can read those same Scriptures and get something different from it. And so the controversy can be really distilled down into three viewpoints. The first one is that, the first viewpoint is that government authority is unlimited and you must comply and obey with every mandate, every dictate, every law, statute, and so forth. And the, the, we went into that to some degree. I illustrated the fact that there's a difference between absolute authority, or I probably should say ultimate authority, and unlimited authority. Because not even God has unlimited authority. He has ultimate authority, but not unlimited authority. And some people might recall it and say, ooh, is that being blasphemous? No, it's not being blasphemous because God's authority, His sovereignty is limited by the rest of His attributes. In other words, God does not have the authority to, to lie just because He's sovereign. Because His attribute of veracity, meaning it's impossible for God to tell a lie, just because He's sovereign doesn't mean He has authority to lie. Uh, just because he is sovereign and has ultimate authority doesn't mean that he has the authority to be unjust because one of his attributes is justice. And so we see that if God, even God, who is the sovereign of the universe, does not have unlimited authority, then it wouldn't follow that he would give unlimited authority to men or women in government, fallen creatures. And we see that he has limited, uh, limited authority in every other area of life. Whether it's the family, you have the, the parents or authority over their children, but it's not unlimited. They can't abuse their children, but they certainly have the authority to raise them up the way that they see fit. Husbands have authority over their wives, but husbands don't have the authority to abuse their wives. Same thing in the church. The church has a structure of authority. Pastor teaches the authority of the church, but he didn't have the authority to get into your private affairs and your business. And it's the same thing in government. They have government has authority, but God never gave them the authority to abuse people. That's kind of a consensus. That's kind of a gist of what we covered with regards to the first viewpoint. The second viewpoint is that God's authority or the authority he gave to government is limited. And it's limited in a sense that there are those who uh, believe that if you refuse to submit to government in issues of faith, that it is correct and it is biblical. And we went through this whole area to demonstrate that indeed there is such a thing as biblical civil disobedience, if you want to call it that. And we went through uh, many of the illustrations to demonstrate that. Oh, yeah, on that first one, if, if government has... There are places like Russia and China and Cambodia, where the Khmer Rouge and people 
thought they did have unlimited authority. And as a result, in the last century alone, uh, 89 million people were exterminated by their own government. And that is a very low figure. Some of them have at least three times that. Um, but back to the uh, second viewpoint that has to do with the, um, the right of a believer to refuse to, to um, obey those dictates from a government that would conflict with their beliefs, their faith. What they believe the Bible says they have the right to pray, you have the right to evangelize, you have these type of, these type of rights. Uh, one issue that was brought up was brought up by um, uh, Dr. Hodge. And I think I might just uh, read that part to you because it's, it's really interesting. Let me change the size of this screen here. Okay, you can see this as I go through it. This is, um, some believe that governmental authority is superior to the authority of individual conscience. In other words, if someone came up to you and said, uh, a government, governmental issue and says, you're, while you're on school grounds, you will not say anything about the Bible, you will not evangelize, you won't pray, you won't do any of these things. And... That would go against your conscience as to what God has to say, that we are responsible to do these things. And so there's a conflict between conscience and what a particular mandate may be. And this is what's addressed here. And this, I'll do this quickly. We went over this last time. This is what Mr. Hodge has to say. But no citizen, even the Christian, has the right to set himself up as legislature or Supreme Court to decide which laws he will obey and which he will not obey whenever his worship of God or his proclamation of the gospel are not directly involved. That means unless those two things are involved, then you have no right to refuse to submit to the governing authorities even if it's a matter of conscience. He says, when the individual's conscience has authority over law, then government by law is jeopardized. Princeton theologian Charles Hodge made this comment and then went on to say, we are to obey all that is actual authority over us, whether their authority be legitimate or usurped, whether they are just or unjust. Now, this is, this is where the rub starts to be felt. And this is where people have to start thinking, is this, is, is this true? Um, one of the things, he concedes that the authority of the state is subordinate in matters of worship and evangelism, so why not in other areas? How can we please God if we act against our own conscience? How can we be true to our conscience if we are required to obey every law, even unjust laws? And then we have Romans chapter 14, verse 23 Whatever is not of faith, meaning your conscience there, your conviction, is sin. This is Martin Luther. Boy, to stand before the authority, even the king was there, and make this statement was supreme courage. If I wish that we had a time machine and I could just click a button and we would be sitting 
in the audience and see him standing before uh, the powers to be at that time and what he said. This was in 1522 before the uh, emperor at the Diet of Worms. He says, he said, Since then, your majesty and your lordships desire simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. That means he's, not, he's being humble in this. He's not being strident or haughty. He says, unless I am convinced by the spirit and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. That just nearly gives you chills to watch a believer stand firm for his convictions in that way. Oh, well, we went into some other things, and I one of the comments I made here is that any government that is intimidated by the people who are making stands according to their conscience is a government that needs to be either uh, amended, adjusted, or replaced. That's the idea that uh, certainly the, the founding fathers had. Uh, let's see. Uh, we're talking about biblical uh, civil disobedience, and here are a few of the examples in your Bible where people disobeyed direct orders from a king or from whoever it was that was the established authority. In every one of these cases, what happened was uh, God was able to bless them for it. Now, I am, let me hasten to say this. I am not a rebel rouser. I'm not saying that we should enter into revolution. I'm saying that we have to have correct discernment when it comes in all matters, especially these type of matters. And there are times. Now, this was the second viewpoint that said there are times when it is proper for a believer to refuse to submit to something that would be against his conscience, be against something that he sees as a mandate from God, because after all, God is the ultimate authority of the universe and certainly has a, has a higher standing than any government or king. So we have Exodus 1, 15 through 20, where the Hebrew midwives refused to obey the command of the king of Egypt to kill the male Hebrew babies, and God blessed them for it. In fact, in Exodus 1, 17... But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded, but they let the boys live. What do we see in three verses later? So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. We have in Joshua, uh, we have Joshua 2, 1 through 18, where uh, Rahab was commanded to turn over any of the Jews that would be spying out the land. She did just the opposite. And because she did, whenever the Jews went into and took over Jericho, her and her family were spared. She countermanded what the king said. Esther chapter 5, you have Esther going in before the king. The mandate then was you don't go, you just don't bop into the king's office. You don't have an audience with the king. If you go to the king unannounced, the penalty was death. She disobeyed that anyway and went to the king, pleaded her case, and as a result, God used her to save 
uh, the Jews from uh, possible extermination. Actually, there's no way that Jews can be exterminated. If you know anything about eschatology, you know why. Because God has made four unconditional covenants to the Jews, and there has to be Jews left on earth for him to fulfill those, those uh, promises. And all the anti-Semitism in the world, Satan and all his demons can't do a thing about it. Then we see Daniel chapter 3, verse 1 through uh, 30. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you know about that, the fiery furnace. Uh, kings told them, bow down to that image. They said, uh, I don't think so. Well, no, they didn't say it that way. But um, <laughs> They said, we will not do it. And they were not haughty in it. I love this part of Scripture when I taught Daniel 6 because when they stood before that king and he says, you're going to bow down or you're going to, you're going to burn. And they said, this is so wonderful. They said, they didn't know that they were going to be delivered. We're looking at it back through history. They didn't know they were going to be delivered. But they told the king, they said, king, we know that our God can deliver us if he wants to. We're not under... We're not under your control. We're under God's control. If he wants to deliver us, he can. Whether he will or whether he won't is up to him. But know this, O king, we will not bow down. I feel like applauding. Isn't that great? Well, uh, another civil... This, and what happened? God delivered them from the furnace. You know that. Matthew 2, 1 through 12. Herod told the Magi, you, go, you come at, when you find out where the child is, you come back and report to us, or to me. This is the king, highest authority in the land. They didn't do it. In fact, they got a, they got a, um, a memo from God and said, uh, don't go back to the king, uh, you go out this way. And God protected them. Matthew 2:13. Joseph Mary didn't stick around to allow Jesus to be killed by King Herod. And ordered them, uh, order, he ordered the death of the two-year-old male babies and so forth. God countermanded the order from the king. And then here's the classic one in Acts 5.29. They told Peter, they, they, uh, they, they locked up uh, Peter and his followers and said, uh, we will let you go if you just promise to quit all this preaching. And they said, uh, again, I don't think so. No, they didn't say it that way. But again, they, they refused to do it. And what, what were they guilty of? They healed, a, they healed a person. And the people were all riled up. And so the, they said, okay, well, uh, let's go to them and see what they're going to do. <coughs> Excuse me, they're going to acquiesce. But this is what they said. But Peter and the apostles answered and said, we must obey God rather than man. And so they were going to secretly let them out the back door uh, because the, the crowds were creating so much fuss. But what did Peter say? Uh-uh, we're not leaving by the back door. We did nothing wrong, and you have to bring us out before the people. See, that was, uh, that was essentially letting the people know that the powers that be had to subordinate to which really was uh, what was right. And then there's uh, all these other illustrations. Let me press on. I'm still reviewing, having got to where I'm trying to get to. Okay, here, here we go. Biblical civil disobedience and revolution are not the same thing. Biblical civil disobedience is resistance which is defensive. It's not on the offenses trying to overthrow anyone. It's just saying, on my, my conviction, no, I won't do it. 
Whereas revolution is aggressive, which is offensive in nature. God does not advocate nor condone revolution against authority. Anytime you try to overthrow an authority, then that's revolution. Now, the Revolutionary War and the Civil War are examples, or excuse me, are not examples of revolution, but of legitimate resistance to, a, to tyranny. The Revolutionary War is a misnomer. That means it's misnamed. It's not a proper name. And would be better referred to as the War for Independence. The colonists did not attack England, nor did they try to overthrow it. They simply could no longer tolerate the oppression of King George, so they declared their independence. That is not revolution. They never attacked the king. They never. They didn't. Launch, let's get a navy together and let's go over here and we're going to overthrow England. That would be revolution. All they did was resist. They said, "No, we're not going to subjugate ourselves to the tyranny anymore," and they declared their independence. He did not respect the right to be free, so they had every right to defend themselves when they were attacked by his soldiers. I have something else to say about that in a little while. If I just keep pressing, I'll get there. The Civil War, also known as the war between the states, are also misnomers. I don't even use those terms anymore, and yet that's what these, this conflict is known as, as the Civil War or the war between the states, and neither one of those uh, designations are proper. And here's why. The southern state did not try to overthrow the U.S. government, nor did it attack the north. So it should not be classified as a civil war. They were trying to... It's not a revolution. They didn't do that. The southern state seceded from the Union, which they had the right to do, and formed a nation called the Confederate States of America. So it wasn't a war between the states of the Union because the southern states were no longer part of the Union. They had formed their own separate Union called the Confederacy. And when the South could no longer tolerate oppression of the North, they separated from it and were forced to defend themselves against northern aggression. Do you understand what I'm saying? And especially young people are not being taught this. It's not a war between the states of the Union. Because they were no longer part of the union. They said, okay, if this is the way the union is going to be, if we're going to be oppressed this way, we're out of here. And they formed their own nation. They were a nation. People call them, well, rebels. And they give them the Everything is mischaracterized. Jefferson Davis was the president of that country called the Confederate States of America. And so... It wasn't a war between the states. It was a war between two nations. Again, misnomers. Here's a quote for you. Revolution against authority is not the same as war against tyranny. And that's from Pastor R.B. Thiem, Jr., Laws of Divine Establishment, page 2. It's clear that God's law supersedes man's law, and when man's law clashes with God's law, it is God's law that must be obeyed and not man's. How far does this principle extend? Are we required to submit to every law and dictate of the state? Expect those that would, uh, excuse me, accept those who would cause us to go against our religious beliefs? Do Christians have the freedom to resist the state only in matters of faith? What about matters of freedom and justice? 
Can Christians legitimately resist tyranny on those grounds? Thought-provoking questions. Where am I? Here I am. Those who embrace viewpoint two would say no. They would say the only time that you can resist tyranny or oppression is if it's in matters of faith. Now we go to viewpoint number three. And we're on new ground. I didn't cover this last time. Viewpoint number three. Those who hold this viewpoint believe God limited the authority of government not only in matters of faith, but also in matters of freedom. This certainly was the viewpoint of our founding fathers because they believed these four things. First of all, God has given all mankind unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and property. They also believe that the purpose of government is to respect and protect those rights. Third, when government abuses those rights, it loses its right to govern. That's certainly what the southern states did. They understood that. And then the fourth is resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. This became the slogan of the colonists. It was their battle cry. Were our founding fathers wrong to resist the tyranny forced upon them? Think about that one. Is the Declaration of Independence something to be proud of or is it an example of men who disobey God by going against His established order of authority? Here's some excerpts from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Is that true? Does God give all men certain unalienable rights that are impossible to lose, surrender, or transfer? If not, where do our rights come from? Does God give kings and governments the power to grant whatever rights they choose to give the people and to deny or revoke all others? Does that sound what a just and sovereign God would authorize? I'm just asking you questions for you to think about these things. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 21 and 23 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe, uh, excuse me, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. What we see here is there's acknowledgement and understanding here that people have rights. Isaiah 10, 1 through 2. Woe to those who enact evil statutes and to those who constantly record unjust decisions so as to deprive the needy of justice and rob the poor of my people of their rights in order that widows may be their spoil and that they may plunder the orphans. The next phrase from the Declaration of Independence. Do you notice I'm going much slower? 
than last time. <laughs> I was excited. I just wanted to get get to it. So uh, th- these are are very thought provoking questions, very serious questions. So as I ask them, I'm going slower to give you time to absorb it and think about it. But to secure these rights, governments are instituted by men. Is that true? Is the purpose of government to secure the God-given rights of the people? If God doesn't establish kings and governments to protect and respect unable rights that he has given to the people, then what is their purpose? What is the purpose of government if that's not it? Unfortunately, many today believe the purpose of government is to provide or take care of the people. And I am here to tell you that is rot. We don't need a nanny. We need freedom. And there's a host of people today that think that it's the government's job to get us out of trouble, to provide and do all the other things. And Hurricane Katrina was a good example of that. There were people that went on a over on an overpass and sat there. Some of them, I think some of them died, I'm not sure, but they would sit there and die waiting for government to come along and do something for them. And then it was all we heard so much about, well, the government didn't do enough. They should have done this. They should have done that. That's the mentality of people today, unfortunately, which is not the purpose of government. There was a time that when a tornado or a hurricane or something like that happened, it was the neighbors and the churches that were Johnny on the spot. And they would take care of the people. And the government was out of it. Because whenever, whatever the government comes in and starts to help, they control, they manage. And I, I don't think I would want to trust uh, any huge organization as opposed to people locally, Christians who are motivated to please God and to do and to be Christ-like. That's the motivation. Well, I, I'm, I'm going to get off. I'm, you know, I could wax on that, but I'm backing off. That's an important point because there's so many people today. Well, what's the government going to do about it? If anybody ever asked me, what do I think that the government has to do about it? I would say, stay out. That's what they need to do. Well, I told you I was getting out of there. Uh, Depriving their just power, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. Is this true? Do those in government derive their power from the people? That would mean that those in government are the servants of the people. Their job is to protect the rights of the people. If they get their their just power from the consent of the governed, that would be the people then that would mean they work for the people. They are the servants of the people. And I'm saying, is that true? That whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, that means protecting the rights of the people, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. Now, that came right directly out of the Declaration of Independence one of the most revered and hallowed documents in our land. And I'm asking you, is this true? 
Is this one of the God-given rights of the people to alter or abolish a government that no longer protects or respects the right, rights and institute a new one? Is this true? Do we have that right? If the answer is no, then we should condemn the, the founding fathers along with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It is inconsistent to, and contradictory to claim that it's wrong to resist government when freedom is on the line, and then praise and celebrate those who did that very thing. If the colonists were wrong, why did God grant them victory over the tyranny of King George? England was a superpower of the world. With the mightiest army of that time, the colonies were inexperienced, ill-prepared, and outnumbered. Certainly, they could not have won their freedom without God's help. They asked for divine providence and received it. They were not condemned for resisting evil. They were rewarded. They were rewarded with freedom. Y'all need to take a break. I do. I need to breathe water. Now remember, there's much, much more coming, and I just want, I'm taking this a bite at a time, and I want you to just think about these things, because they certainly need to be thought about. The following is an excerpt from an article from Pastor Chuck Baldwin entitled, My Country, Right or Wrong. I started not to put this up there because he uses a few words. They're not bad words, but... Um, he is very animate about this issue. And the reason I'm, I, I went ahead and put this up here is because he has some really thought-provoking things that he says that we need to think about. This is what it says. To America's founders, patriotism had everything to do with the love of liberty, not the love of government. Today's brand of patriotism, at least as expressed by many, is totally foreign to the fundamental principles upon liberty which... America was built. I'm talking about the idea that government is an end and an aim in itself. The idea that government must be protected from the people. The idea that bigger government equals better government. The idea that criticism of government makes one unpatriotic. The idea that government is a panacea for all our ills. And the idea that loyalty to a nation equals loyalty to the government all of this is a bunch of bull manure. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm just quoting it. But he, he has some, some thoughts in there that are, I'm not trying to be provocative, but just keep, keep listening. He says, when government, any government, stops protecting the liberties of its citizens, and especially when it begins trampling those liberties, it has become a destructive power and needs to be altered or abolished, period. Doesn't that sound like what we just read from the Declaration of Independence? Can any honest, objective citizen not readily recognize that the current central government in Washington, D.C. long ago stopped protecting the God-given rights of free men and became a usurper of those rights? Is there the slightest doubt in the heart of any lover of liberty that the biggest threat to our liberties is not to be found in any foreign capital, but in the province of the Potomac. Therefore, 
We must cast off this phony idea that we owe some kind of devotion to the system. Away with the notion that vowing to protect and prolong the powers that be makes us good Americans. The truth is, there is very little in Washington, D.C. that is worthy of protecting or prolonging. The system is a ravenous beast that is gorging itself on our liberties. Patriotism has nothing to do with supporting a president or being loyal to a political party or any of the sort. It is patriotic to support our country, which almost always means our government, right or wrong. Now, this is a quote, by the way. I meant to tell you this. This is one of the most misquoted cliches in America, American history, by the way. The government zealots on both the right and left use this phrase often to stifle opposition by making people who would fight for smaller government appear unpatriotic. Now, here's the, cl the cliché. Remember when I was giving you the first viewpoint and I said one of the manifestations of someone who thinks that, the government, that God has given the government unlimited authority is they will make a statement like saying, my country, right or wrong? That was in the first part that I did. So I'm addressing it again here from this article. And this is where this cliché... <coughs> Excuse me, I'm sorry, I <coughs> didn't move my thing. Uh, this is a quote of where that came from. The cliché, my country, right or wrong, comes from a short address delivered on the floor of the U.S. Senate by Missouri Senator Carl Schulz, Schurz, taking a strong anti-imperialist position and having his patriotism questioned because of it, Schurz, on February the 29th, 1872, said... The senator from Wisconsin cannot frighten me by exclaiming, my country, right or wrong. In one sense, I say to my country, and my country is the great American republic. My country, right or wrong, if right, to be kept right, and if wrong, to be set right. Patriotism means we love freedom. It means we understand that freedom is a gift of God. It means we understand that government has only one legitimate function, to protect freedom. It means that our love of liberty demands that we oppose, alter, or even abolish any form of government that becomes destructive to these ends. And it means that we will never allow government to steal liberty from our hearts. Now, that was that's the end of the quote. And it was... It was somewhat brash. I'm not trying to apologize for it, but it, uh, it, uh, I gave it for you to you to see that perspective. Now, this is very. This next paragraph I here, have here is exceedingly important, especially with regards to our subject matter, which I'm going to get to. Not today, unfortunately. <laughs> when I, uh, I'm going to exegete Romans chapter. 13 verses 1 through 7, and we're going to go into great detail what it means. But this is something you need to know that is why there is a controversy and why so many people are mixed up. Just hear this. There's a very common mistake that many people make when they consider Romans 13, 1 through 7. They fail to recognize that those verses come from the perspective of a government operating properly as a minister of God for good and the people's responsibility to submit to it. That is the context that Romans 13, 1 through 7 is given to us. 
to apply the submission of those verses to a government that has become tyrannical and a minister of Satan for evil is a gross misapplication. What should Christians do when their own government becomes their enemy? Do they have any recourse? Of course, they can pray, but does God give them the right to defend themselves? He gives them the right to defend themselves against criminals on the street, but what about the criminals in office? Criminals in office have the power to do much more harm than the criminal on the street. Many believe that the, that the solution is to vote the criminals out of office. But what if nearly every office holder and candidate running for office are liars? People find themselves voting not for the candidate they can truly support, but for a candidate who is the lesser of two evils. What do you wind up when you vote for the lesser of two evils? You wind up with evil. This is a quote from the New American Magazine, July 5, 2010. All of our political and military leaders pay lip service to this rule of law, and all of them solemnly swear to uphold, obey, and defend the Constitution. However, for many of them in this area, as in so many others, their oaths of office are meaningless, empty words that they regularly ignore and willingly violate. End of quote. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States of America, and the Bill of Rights are the safeguards we have against our own government enslaving us. When the government is no longer bound by the chains of the Constitution, there is tyranny. Here's a quote from Thomas Jefferson. In questions of power, then, let no more be heard of confidence in man but bind him down from mischief by the chains of the Constitution. Only the foolish or naive think that kings or governments will restrain themselves. And when the people allow government officials to routinely break their oaths of office without holding them accountable, freedom is lost. Now this next question here may be the most important question in this whole series. But how can Christians hold government officials accountable if they believe that the Bible requires them to submit to governmental tyranny? I think any rational person would recognize that whether it's a king or whether it's a group of men in a government, whatever it is, when they have power... The tendency is not to restrain power, but to increase their power. And my, the, the question is, is uh, if we don't have the right to hold them accountable, then there's going to be a loss of freedom. But here's the question again. How can Christians hold government officials accountable if they believe the Bible requires them to submit to governmental tyranny?
Nearly all of those who have acquired the power of office use it unethically or unlawfully for their own aggrandizement and to remain in power. I think right here, I'll draw a line, I'm sorry, it's <laughs> time is gone. Uh, I'm very close to getting to actually starting exegeting the verses. These are three viewpoints that are presented to you. And I'm just giving you my best understanding of what the Bible has to say about these three viewpoints. And I'm, I'm hoping that you will consider these viewpoints, consider what the Bible has to say about these viewpoints, and that God the Holy Spirit will lead you into making the right decisions with regarding this so important issue. It's not an issue you can skirt. It's not an issue that you can just say, well, let's talk about sports. I'd really rather not talk about this. Well, I'm on the same page as you. I'd rather talk about anything other than this. But this is something that we don't have the luxury of avoiding. And it is my goal or hope that in giving you these issues and these questions for you to consider, that we will have the right perspective of, in our, our, of our relationship with our, those who have power over us. And I also hope that you continue to hear it out to the end because there's still a lot coming. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our God, that you are omnipotent, that you are sovereign, that you are just. We recognize that we live in times that are disparaging. It appears that the times may be getting worse. But we don't fret because we are your royal family. And you have protected us and provided for us. And we want to do the right thing in the right way. So we pray that you will help us consider all these things. And so that we will live a life that will be pleasing to you. That we will not be afraid and we will not be ignorant. That we will know why we do what we do. We thank you that you have revealed these great and mighty things to us. And we pray this all in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.